This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time Podcast, friends. My name is Erica, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. My guest today is Lauren McAfee. Lauren is an author and a mom. She's also the granddaughter of the founder of Hobby Lobby, where her dad currently serves as president, and she also works for Hobby Lobby corporate offices. She gives us a little inside scoop on that today, but my favorite part of our conversation is about her daughter, Zion. Lauren and her husband went through a grueling seven-year adoption process before they were finally able to bring home their baby girl. Just weeks after becoming a mom, though, Lauren found out that Zion had a rare childhood cancer that required immediate action. Today, I talk with Lauren about trusting God when things don't go as planned and how she dealt with the shocking diagnosis. Thankfully, today, Zion is doing well, but I'm impressed with the way Lauren walked through both the hardship of adoption and a cancer diagnosis. We also talk a bit about her book, which encourages millennials to give the Bible another chance if they haven't already, and why we both think there's a lot of power in that old book nearly everyone has somewhere in their home. Oh, and on that note, her family also founded the Museum of the Bible, Very Cool, which is located in Washington, D.C. I hope you'll take a lot from this conversation with Lauren. Enjoy. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, Lauren. I'm so glad we're finally getting to chat. Yes. So glad. This is great. Yeah. For people listening, we've kind of tried to set this up a couple times and we've gotten delayed, which you'll hear about, but I think now it's just the perfect time for us to chat. So um, I've got so many things I want to cover with you today, but before we jump into everything, can you just give us a little bit of an intro to you and your family and your background? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Lauren McAfee. And I live in Oklahoma City um, with my husband. We've been married just over 10 years. And we have a daughter who is two years old. Um, But I work at the Hobby Lobby corporate office, which is a lot of fun for me because it is a family business. So my grandfather is the founder and still the CEO today of Hobby Lobby. And my dad is the president of Hobby Lobby. So I've you know, gotten to for years now, walk the halls of work and see family members from, you know, my grandparents to cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, and before I was working at Hobby Lobby, I was working with the Museum of the Bible, which is currently a museum in Washington, DC. Um, but before it was open in DC, it was doing traveling exhibits around the country. Uh, so I got to, my, so my dad, Steve Green is the founder and board chair of Museum of the Bible. So I got to work with him as he was kind of building and founding this museum. And it was a lot of fun. Um, I learned so much in my time there and was there for six years before kind of hopping over to the Hobby Lobby corporate side. So that uh, is a little bit of me. I'm also a PhD student because I absolutely love learning. And so <laughs> I am a student um, studying ethics and public policy uh, at, through Southern Seminary. So my husband is also in the same PhD program, so we're we're on the we started at the same time, so we're kind of on the same track and going to same classes and stuff, and, and so that's been really fun to be able to study alongside my husband. So yeah, that I mean, is a little bit of a nutshell. I, I guess. was going to say that would be almost better. I feel like doing it at the same time yes. because you guys can like study together, and you're like 
always going to want to talk about the same things because you're exactly. learning those things. So that's a pretty unique situation, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely love it. It's been a lot of fun for us. So do, I have to ask you, did you always think you were going to go into the family business? Because I know that can be good and bad. It sounds like it's good on your part, but was it always something that you planned on? I would say yes. I I generally always kind of saw myself working with the family business. I, you know, as a young kid, also saw myself being like a veterinarian or a police officer at different times in my life, just kind of, you know, thinking about what am I going to be when I grow up? But as I got older and was, and was actually thinking about kind of, um, what I might realistically do in terms of a job, I generally always pictured myself at Hobby Lobby in some capacity. So for me, that was uh, a great thing. And, you know, I have a lot of siblings and a lot of cousins and not everyone has ended up in the company, which is completely fine. You know, our, my grandparents, as well as my parents always said, you know, there's no pressure at all to work at Hobby Lobby. We want you to be wherever it is that God has you. So I grew up kind of with that freedom of knowing, you know, my family was going to support me, whether I was working in the business or was doing you know, something completely unrelated. So I, for, but for me, that was kind of something I always wanted to do. So whenever I was in college, I worked uh, part-time at the Hobby Lobby store in the college town where I lived. So I got to be uh, in, you know, in the retail environment and um, working in a store for three years. And then once I graduated, then um, transitioned to uh, the corporate office. So yeah, I've gotten to have a number of different opportunities throughout kind of my uh, time with Hobby Lobby and seeing different capacities of the company, which has been really cool. So for me, it was always a good thing and something I wanted. Um, and, but, you know, thankfully, my siblings who are working outside of the company would say it's been a good thing for them that they that hasn't been the case for them. So it's been, yeah, thankfully, we had a lot of freedom and support so to kind people, of follow what so when you were each work- Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, so when you were working on the retail side, it was probably like, oh, you better be nice to Lauren because... <laughs> Her grandpa is the founder, right? <laughs> you know, I never told anyone who I was. Now, some people figured it out, but I think a lot of people didn't actually. I mean, the manager was kind and wasn't like making announcements about it. So <laughs> I really actually got to go under the radar and people just thought I was the quiet girl who was uh, really interested in uh, stocking the shelves in the back because I, I didn't like to be up front. So um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed having that experience and, and yeah, most people didn't know who I was, which was actually great for me. <laughs> um, and so can you give us the quick, um, just the quick origin story? Because obviously this is a nationwide, like beloved store. I personally love Hobby Lobby and I love <laughs> to just go in and browse and have to keep myself from buying so many, um, really cool wall decorations, the Bible verses. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly didn't really discover it until a few years ago. I mean, I of course had heard of Hobby Lobby, but I've never been like a decor person. I've never been somebody that goes to like a Joanne Fabrics type of place. So when I went into Hobby Lobby, um, when I was like sort of decorating my new house, I was like, I feel like I've been missing out my whole life. Like, (laughs) where has this place been? So tell us how, how did your grandpa found this place? Yeah, so in the early 70s, my grandma and grandpa were young married couple with with their three kids and my grandpa was working for another retailer 
And he had started working in retail right out of high school. He, he just loved retail and had become worked his way up in this other company um, to be a store manager. He was the youngest store manager uh, in the in the company, and they were a large, large retail company. And he, while he was managing the store for this other company, realized, you know, that he had aspirations for going into business for himself and was kind of looking to see what that might be. And there was a trend at the time for mini picture frames. So he and my grandma got a $600 loan and bought the materials they needed to manufacture mini picture frames. And then they started distributing those to uh, small stores in the area to see if they would sell them. So for two years, it was just this, you know, many, they were making many picture frames and selling them to companies who were their kind of retailer. And then they decided to open their own storefront after two years. And um, so they got a little 600 square foot store and they were selling their frames from there. So it started as a, a frame shop. And then through the years, it just kind of, they expanded and added different departments and added new stores slowly, but surely. And, um, today it is, there are over 900 Hobby Lobby stores in the country and we are in 48 States. So it's you know, obviously grown, uh, over the past 45 years, but my grandpa is still CEO and loves it. And he's just really uh, brilliant and talented uh, retailer. And he abs- just absolutely loves it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, now that I know the backstory, it's going to be even more special when I go. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so I love that you guys are also involved with the Museum of the Bible, which I regret to say I have not been to yet because I moved away from <laughs> You need to. I know. I moved away about four years ago. And so every time I go back, it's always been like for a quick meeting or something. So I never have time but I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it on my list for next time. Um, but one of the reasons, okay, so one of the reasons we want to get to why sort of our last interview was pushed back. But first, let's talk about your daughter, Zion. Um, yeah. You guys had recently adopted her. Like, I didn't even realize when I first contacted the, you that you were actually on maternity leave. Like, I was like, wow, yeah. we really <laughs> did just adopt her. Um, so tell me about sort of how did you get to the place where you were adopting? And I think you adopted from overseas. Um, what's uh-huh, the story yeah. behind that part of her life? Sure. So my grandparents actually adopted um, my aunt and then my parents adopted my sister And so adoption has kind of always been in and around our family and just kind of a part of um, life. And so I kind of, since I was a teenager, had wanted to adopt for myself someday. And so my husband was on the same page with that. And whenever we were um, 25, we started the adoption process. So that was uh, seven years ago now. And we chose international adoption because my parents had done an international adoption. My sister is adopted from China and that seemed like just kind of the path that God had for us. And so we were pursuing international adoption. The international adoption programs at the time were going through a lot of, especially depending on the country we had started with an Africa, a program in Africa. And a lot of the programs there in Africa were closing because they were needing to restructure their legal process in order to um, cut out opportunity for corruption in the system of international adoption. And so we were three years into the adoption process with Uganda whenever Uganda closed. 
their program. So we had to start back at square one. We tried to enter another program that was being piloted through our agency. And then that program didn't work out. And so then um, it had been basically five years later and we were still not having any luck with the adoption. So we then entered the China program because both parents have to be 30 years old or older to adopt from China. And so China had always been on my heart as somewhere we wanted to adopt because my sister um, being from China. And so when we were finally both old enough, then we switched to the China adoption program. And uh, to almost a year and a half later, we were finally able to travel to China and adopt our daughter, Zion. So we, so it was a long journey for us, you know, seven, basically six years of being in the adoption process and doors continuing to close. Um, and, and, and in that process too, we also started trying to have children biologically and found out that we, uh, would experience infertility. And so lots of, uh, lots and lots of time, uh, for us to, yeah, see that, you know, God's timing was perfect and ours was not and, and attempting to start a family through lots of different ways and, and none of it working out really. Yeah. What was that, I guess, in the middle of it when you're like two years in and you're feeling like, I feel like we would have at least gotten a couple more steps than we are right now. Yeah. Like, what are you feeling yeah. at that point and how do you deal with those feelings? Yeah. So it was, it, I mean, it was just really hard. It, it realize you realize how little control you have, uh, over things like that when there's nothing you can do to make a difference kind of in, in meeting a longing, you know, a deep longing of your heart. And, and so my husband and I both, you know, when we were a couple years into the adoption and then when it Uganda closed and we knew we were going to kind of be going back to square one with an adoption we that's when we started biologically trying to have children um and so we were kind of hopeful at that point you're like okay like maybe this door is closing um so we won't maybe have our first child through an adoption but we'll have it uh first child biologically and and then that so we were a little bit hopeful because like okay like maybe this is just God's plan for, for pushing us in a different direction. And then when that didn't work either, and we were years into infertility and still not anywhere closer to having a, a, an adoption, um, work out that those were the hardest years, kind of the four years into it with no more hope than we had been kind of a few years prior. So there were definitely really dark days, really difficult days when, you know, this deep longing of your heart continues to go unfulfilled and you're, you know, we, we both knew that God was good and never doubted his character, but we definitely, we couldn't understand what he was doing. And so that was, that was just hard to wrestle through. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't understand why God's not providing us, but I know that I can trust his character and that he has a good purpose for his glory in it. And so we tried to just lean into that and rest in the, the, his promises and, and know that he, he being a sovereign God could bring about good even through our pain and suffering. Yeah. And so fast forward to where you first get like a, an inkling that, oh my gosh, like it could happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. That, so that was May, May 31st. Uh, just this, this last May, so May of 2019, we got a, what's called a referral, which means a file of, of a child who was matched with our family for an adoption. So it had Zion's information and her picture 
Um, so from, from that point, when we got her information, then we started the paperwork process to say, yes, we want to accept this child and adopt her. It took three months, three and a half months from that point until we could actually travel and pick her up. So it was mid-September and we um, it flew to China and we, we were in China for two weeks. It takes a couple weeks to process the paperwork in the China side of it in order to get her a visa and everything to fly back to America. So flew to China and we met her on Monday, September 16th. And they handed her to us. And that is a very surreal thing for someone to place a child in your hands that you've never met before. And she was 19 months old. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, this is our daughter. And it was, it was, it was incredible and amazing and also anticlimactic. It was, (laughs) it was like we were in a government office building and like people were working at desks Cause that's just, that's where they have families go is like these, you know, government offices. And so, so we're like sitting there on a couch in a little corner of a government office while people around us are working. And then someone walks in with her and it was like, here you go. Um, we need you to do some paperwork now. And it's like, okay, this is like the most amazing moment of my life. But also like, we're just in this very random spot. That, that <laughs> and is you're weird. asking me to do paperwork now. <laughs> it's like such a weird moment, but incredibly now looking back, like seeing just how magical it was because it was the moment we first met. And from that moment forward have felt like she was always meant to be ours. And like, we've known her, her whole life, even though that's not the case. It just felt so like natural. Yeah. Natural. I'd say, I guess would be the word to describe it. Yeah. I was going to say, I would think my, my opinion would be the first thing you would want to do is be like, me and my husband are going to go here in the other room with our new daughter. We'll talk to you in a minute. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, I don't want to do paperwork right now because it's like you would want that private moment. But I mean, obviously you just have to do whatever they're giving you. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, can you, I, like, what were the emotions that you kind of felt in that moment that you first laid eyes, eyes on her? Yeah. Oh man. The first time we got to see, I like laid eyes on her. It was, I mean, it was just, we were just so thrilled. Like, okay, this this is actually happening. Like she's here, we're here. And like, we are her parents now. Like we're, this is, this is our family. Um, and so it was definitely like just overwhelmingly surreal too, because it was for us something that we had dreamed about for over six years and worked for and prayed for, for over six years. Um, and finally getting to see her, there's just, I'm sure for every parent too, that has a child traditionally, biologically, it's the same thing. When you finally have that baby in your hands, there's like, there's nothing quite, words can't quite describe the moment. And it is the same with our daughter. And and we did then, so we had like a few minutes to kind of get like, say hi. And we were, for her, it was, she didn't know what was happening because she's a 19 month old being handed to strangers. And so we were, you know, trying, we were giving her some snacks and a cup and trying to make her feel comfortable with us because she couldn't, you know, couldn't grasp what this meant for her. And so we were trying to, to, you know, imagine it from her perspective and wanting to, to help set her at ease. So we had, a, you know, a few minutes to kind of sit there and, you know, give her some snacks and, and, um, just, you know, hold her before we were, yeah, like 
we need you to sign this, these papers, you know, you need to do this. And we need, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was a, it was a very unique way to become parents for the first time. And we wouldn't have had it any other way. So how long then did you stay in the country with her before you guys flew back? So yeah, from, from that point, we were there for another two weeks and, um, a week of that was spent in Hunan, which is the province where she was born. And then a week of that was spent in Guangzhou, uh, which is in a, the province just South of Hunan. Um, and, and the reason we had to be in Guangzhou for one of those weeks was that's where the U S consulate is. So we had to apply for her to get a visa and then we had to wait a week for them to process that and give us her visa. And then at that point we could fly home. So so we flew home the end of September and, you know, landed. And when we landed in the U.S., she uh, became a U.S. citizen upon our landing in the on U.S. Oh. soil. And so she was an American citizen at that point. And then we had a huge welcoming committee, like all my family and my husband's family and friends of ours were at the airport with signs and balloons. And it was really sweet to for everyone to get to see her for the first time and meet our new daughter. And so that was, yeah, just end of September. So not even, uh, six months ago at this point. That's insane. And I'm sure what we're going to talk yeah. about next is makes it even crazier. Feeling. But <laughs> I wanted to ask how you chose her name. Yeah. So Zion was one of the top kind of two names that we had been considering for her name. And the reason that we had Zion in, in the um, kind of list for us was because her Chinese name. So in the, in the orphanage, she had a name that was given to her by the orphanage. Um, and it was a Chinese name. It was Chang Zi Chun. And so most parents that adopt from China will rename their child with an American name and try to incorporate one of their Chinese names in somewhere. So either uh, as a middle name or, you know, as a second middle name or part of their name. So her name, Z-I-Z, was a part of her Chinese name. And so we liked that Zion kind of just added to, added the O-N mm-hmm. to her Chinese name. And so that's when that one became a contender was when we knew her Chinese name. And then whenever we were waiting for the final paperwork to be able to travel and pick her up, my husband and I got to lead a trip of college students to Israel and do a 10-day Israel tour where we were kind of leading the, the devotions and the teaching times. And while we were there, um, we went to Yad Vashem, and um, it's a, you know, a beautiful and hard museum that uh, recounts the Holocaust and, and what that meant for the Jewish people. And I remember walking through Yad Vashem and just being amazed at the resilience of the Jewish people and that they had been through so much yet were, had not only survived it, but have thrived, um, in the midst of what they, despite what they had been through. And so for our daughter, I wanted the same thing to be said of her that, you know, despite, um, not having, uh, us as her parents and having a forever family until she was 19 months old, I wanted her to thrive, you know, not just survive. And so loved the kind of symbolism there. Um, and, and Zion is Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. And so we were in Jerusalem whenever I was kind of processing this and having just seen Yad Vashem. And so Zion means home for God's people. 
And we got to go to Mount Zion the next day. And that was kind of when we decided to choose the name Zion for her. So chose the name Zion and her middle name is Laurel, which is the first four letters of my name and the first, the last two letters of Michael's name kind of put together. So it's a little piece of each of us, oh, um, which we thought was really sweet. Yeah. So that whole, yeah. that whole name is such a meaningful story. I love that. Yeah. Um, so, so then once you guys got her home, you get her home and you're on maternity leave and just enjoying this new part of your life. And then a couple months in, tell us what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So it was actually seven weeks in, it hadn't even been two months. So seven weeks after we had met, um, and we were home together, we were doing some different medical checks, you know, when, since she had been, um, internationally adopted, they'll often recommend, you know, doing just different checks because they haven't had, um, the typical like hearing tests that newborns get because she was in an orphanage. And so we were doing all of these standard things, just kind of making sure that we, we were uh, making sure we we're giving her the best care and everything that she needed medically. And so she had a, a scan done and our, I remember it was a Wednesday and my husband and I, you know, we went to her doctor's appointment that morning and then they said like, okay, like we'll call you maybe like in a week or so and talk to you about the results. And it was a couple hours later, her primary care doctor called us and said, we need you to come to our office right now. Uh, and so we knew that that was not normal. So we drove to the the office and we, you know, we'd had her seven weeks and we sat down across from her primary care doctor and she told us that they had found a large tumor, uh, incidentally found a large tumor on Zion's liver and it could be cancer and we needed to go to the children's hospital emergency room right then. So we, we did, uh, went to the hospital and that began, uh, the, the journey of finding out that she did have hepatoblastoma, which is a cancer that is usually found in children under three. And there are only about 150 cases of that every year. So it's very rare. And she was one of those special, <laughs> unique uh, kiddos that has this rare form of cancer. And so the the journey from then was kind of immediately surgery to have the tumor removed, and um, we wouldn't really find out the what stage of cancer was until they were able to get it out and kind of do the biopsy and all that. So. We found out on a Wednesday that she had cancer and then less than a week later, so it was Tuesday, that following Tuesday, she was going into surgery to have the tumor removed. Um, and that week was definitely the worst week of my husband and I's lives. Um, it was, it's, it's like, you never expect that. And so, and two for us, it was like, we've, we've had this girl, this sweet, precious daughter, seven weeks. And like, we're still on, on maternity and paternity leave and just like soaking it in and um, getting to know her. And, you know, we've waited for six, over six years for this. Um, and yeah, to be seven weeks into that. And, and then a cancer diagnosis was really <laughs> not at all what we expect. Um, yeah, we, we, had walked through, you know, the season of waiting for it. And so we kind of, it felt like, okay, 
God, kind of like we, we have done our suffering. Yeah. So why, why now this? And so, yeah, it was really scary. Well, I always, um, as a mom, I just imagine those moments of in between where you get the call and you're like, I have to wait till I get to the doctor's office. And then you have to go to the cancer center and wait and find out, is it cancer? You know, like those yeah. seem like oh, man. the hardest, like, you know, however long it is to me, the emotion would be so overwhelming. So like, how are you like physically processing that? Yeah, that was what made the first week the hardest was because it was the point of the journey that we had the least amount of information because, you know, it's like they, they didn't know how far along the cancer was and if it was for sure cancer, it could have been, you know, a benign tumor type, those different type of things. And so you just, you're having to try not to fill in the gaps with worst case scenarios mm-hmm. in, in, la- in, in the kind of lack of information. So the, that was, I think what made that first week the hardest. And so we, and, and we were like in shock. And so I didn't know how to process that. It's like, I, I don't actually even know how, what do you, what do you do when someone tells you this? Like, so my husband and I both, I think we're processing it, um, just kind of moment by moment. And thankfully we had great support and, you know, lots of family and friends who began praying with us. But I mean, we just, I remember so many times rocking Zion to sleep and holding her, you know, asleep in my arms and just crying. And, and those were the moments for me when I felt like I emotionally processed what was happening was when she was asleep in my arms, um, you know, before laying her in bed, because in the moments when she was awake, we were wanting to be just very present with her and playing and, and trying not to let her sense the amount of stress that we were feeling because she's, you know, a one and a half year old. And so she doesn't understand. And so we were just trying to make her comfortable and love on her really well. Um, and, and be what we needed to be, to be strong and give her the best care and and make the decisions that we had to for her. So for me, the days didn't feel like I was processing it. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. But then as soon as she was asleep, it was when it would hit me, you know, at night. And so those were, those were the hardest moments. It's just 
holding her in my arms and crying and then trying myself to go to sleep when all you can think of is, will I have, how many more nights will we have that we get to rock her to sleep? And will that be cut short? So you guys then started chemotherapy? Yeah. So we, she had her big surgery. They removed the tumor and thankfully the tumor was in a really good spot on her liver. So they were able to remove all of the tumor and get good margins. And so when they sent that off and got the pathology back, they confirmed it was cancer and it was stage one cancer. So it was really good that we were able to catch it early and, but it was active cancer and so we needed to do two rounds of chemotherapy just to make sure to kill any rogue cancer cells that could have still been in her body. Mm-hmm. So we did two rounds of chemo. Both of those were in December. And so um, we, we spent most of kind of from no, mid-November to mid-January in kind of self-quarantined ourselves to our house because the chemotherapy really weakened her immune system. And, mm-hmm. and so she was much more susceptible to getting sick and they really wanted her to stay healthy and strong to be able to fight the, you know, through the chemo and, and fight the cancer. So we, yeah, had, you know, two months where we really didn't go anywhere, but our house and the hospitals. And so we missed out on a lot of Christmas, uh, with family, which was a bummer. It's not how we imagined our first Christmas home with our baby. Um, but we, we are thankful for the time that we had in terms of just bonding and connecting. It gets a lot of time to spend with her, um, being home all day, every day, um, caring for her. So she responded really well to the chemotherapy. And so we did in January, mid January, I got the news that she's in remission. And so we're so thankful that she is in remission now and doing really, really well. And she's recovered from the chemotherapy and it's kind of back to, normal health, which is just, um, yeah, we're just so grateful. So grateful. Does that put you on? I mean, because you know, it's like you went in for this routine health check and then you get this shocking news. I feel like that could give you a form of PTSD. Uh, does that (laughs) put you on notice where you're like kind of a little worried all the time or are you, uh, are you able to sort of just move on and be like, okay, you know, everything's fine. Yeah. You know, we, I think that my husband and I have each processed it differently. He was probably processing more of that in the moment, uh, during the, the kind of cancer and chemo season. And for me, I tend to kind of have emotionally delayed reactions. So I didn't feel any of that kind of extra fear and anxiety until I feel like we got the news that she was in remission. And it, I mean, and it was like immediate, like we, we were in the, in the car pulling out of the hospital from being at her appointment where they told us, you know, the labs came back and she was in remission. When it, when I kind of broke down crying one of, for at one of the hardest points that I cried was when we finally Afterwards. got the remission news. And I think that it was because I was finally, like I knew that we were finally at the point that she was okay. And so I, I, was kind of in crisis mode up to that point and mentally I think thinking just, okay, I'm going to be strong for her. And then it was like, Oh, she's okay. I can process this. And so it hit me. Yeah. Hit me kind of all at once. But then the weeks after that, it was the fear, the kind of, well, what if this happens again? Well, what if, what if one of us gets cancer? Kind of all of these extra fears that I had never had before that when you go through something like that, you realize how fragile life is and, and there's much more opportunity for fear to creep in. And so just in the past two months, I've really had to, to work through 
meditating on truth and scripture and reminding myself of that in the moments of fear and anxiety. Um, and also, you know, just sharing that with my friends and allowing them to be in the process with me to just one, having them listen and validate like that, you know, that's totally makes sense (laughs) that you'd feel this way. But then also to them gently remind me that we have a good God who's sovereign and in control. And he, he has control over anything that does happen in our lives and we can trust him. Yeah. Well that I'm so glad. And I was so happy because like I said, I've been following you on Instagram since we (laughs) originally connected and you do a lot of posting and updating about what's been going on. And so I was just so relieved for you guys when I saw that everything was going well and that she's. Yeah. Thank you. Congratulations on that. Yeah. She, man, she's so resilient too. She's just, she's a trooper through all of it. I mean, we were just amazed at how well she took handled everything. And yeah, now she's, you know, she, she didn't know a whole lot different in terms of routine because we, whenever we first got home, we had, you know, these different doctor's appointments we were taking her to. So she just kind of got used to like, Oh, like this is life is you go to doctor's appointments. (laughs) (laughs) So now she's like getting to have a bit of normalcy, uh, since being in our home, which is really nice. Like getting to actually go places and we still lots of time with us because we just are completely obsessed with her and we love her. Yes. Well, I understand that. And I think that, I think that two is like, honestly, the cutest age. So you're coming in. Yeah. <laughs> Good spot. I told you my daughter just turned two. So, um, so I just, they fun. start talking and they're just learning so much at that stage and they yes. just start to become little people. So I think you guys are in a, in a wonderful period of time. So that's great. Yeah. Well, we're loving it. It's been a lot of fun. Well, you, you mentioned scripture. And so I wanted to transition to talking about your book that you wrote with your husband, which I kind of love that you guys wrote a book about the Bible because, and for the younger generation, because that's a tough sell sometimes. And I've been personally um, writing a lot about the church lately. That's sort of been my focus and just how do we reach people that have left the church and maybe that aren't into the Bible so much. And so when I saw your book, I was like, this is so interesting. And I think I even used something from it in something I wrote, like a stat that you had in there. Oh, nice. Well, good. Yeah. So, um, tell me about, you know, how you ended up deciding to write about this and, you know, what's been the response? Like, do you think people are, hearing what you're saying about why we need to really, you know, kind of take back the Bible. Like this is a, you know, well-documented book. Like, <laughs> you know, we should sure. be using this. It's not just for John three sixteen at, you know, at a basketball game. Totally. Yeah. So my husband and I, um, we wrote the, our book called not what you think because of our own experience kind of wrestling through the hard questions about the Bible. So we both went to a, um, secular university and, um, have, you know, went through that season where we wrestled with a lot of hard questions of scripture. Um, both of us ended up coming to accept the Bible, um, for as truth, even kind of coming out of that. We, and then we both went to seminary and, and so we've had, yeah, the opportunity to kind of think a lot about, our own experience, as well as observing our friends' experience and as millennials, 
um, ourselves being millennials, and looking at how our generation has uh, come to kind of view the Bible. And we, whenever we were um, raising awareness about the Museum of the Bible, so my husband worked for Museum of the Bible at the same time that I was working there. And so we got to travel together and, and speak about the Bible and share about the Museum of the Bible, invite people to be a part of it. So part of our job was just traveling around and telling people about Museum of the Bible and its mission, which is to invite all people to engage in the Bible. So in that, we were having conversations with people all over the country, kind of in and around their thoughts and their experiences about with the Bible. So it gave us some really interesting insights into how people broadly view the Bible and then considered how our generation as millennials had a unique uh, perspective about the Bible. And we, we found that a lot of millennials were turned off to the Bible or were not engaging in the Bible and, and weren't really interested in the Bible. And it wasn't because they had had an experience where they were reading through the Bible and from engaging with it decided, you know, this isn't for me, but it was more that they had never engaged with it. And so their perspective of, of the Bible was based on kind of what they were seeing in pop culture or media or sound bites. Um, and so our hope with this book was to challenge our generation to actually take a look at the Bible itself. So read the Bible examine it for yourself and then come to an informed decision of, is this some, is this what I'm rejecting? Am I rejecting the actual, you know, the truths that are in the Bible, not just what I'm hearing. So we are kind of uh, hope with the book, not what you think was that, you know, millennials would be challenged if we're the open-minded generation that we like to say we are, that they'll be open-minded about the Bible and, and kind of check it out for themselves. And so in our book, we try and help them navigate maybe the misperceptions that they have and just give a, a different perspective on those and, and also try and give them kind of a, a high level overview of, you know, if you're going to do this challenge and actually look at the Bible yourself, here are some helpful tips for approaching the Bible. Because we understand the Bible is a, a large book. It was written 2000 years ago and longer. And, and so there can be obviously some challenges with engaging and understanding the Bible. And so we get that. We, we acknowledge that. And here are some helpful tips of kind of approaching the Bible and understanding it with its context and, and its overarching message um, that kind of everything is pointing to Jesus and here's why. So, so we tried to kind of do that throughout the book, just in hopes that our, our uh, millennials as well as Gen Z will consider for themselves reading the Bible. Okay. What's your, like if someone's listening and they, are sort of like maybe they grew up in church, but they don't go anymore. And they're sort of like, I don't know, like, I'm not sure how I feel about the Bible. Like, <laughs> what is your sort of, I guess, plug for why you should take steps to reacclimate yourselves with the Bible? And then also, like, what is the first step if you're just going to step back into it? And it's been since middle school that you have really read it. Yeah. So the, the thing that I love highlighting about the Bible is just its incredible impact. I mean, because of its impact in our world, I think, I mean, to be ignorant of what the Bible is and is just teaching, I think is to miss out on, on a lot of great depth, um, and understanding of kind of the world around us. So uh, in saying that, I mean, so the Bible has been the number one best-selling book for year, year after year and still is today. And so this is a book that 
millions around the world are reading every day and are um, gaining uh, insights and truths for their lives. And so we, so not, not only knowing that, you know, it's like a best-selling book and millions have read it and are reading, but also you can see it kind of all throughout culture. I mean, you'll watch even popular level movies and they'll quote something that's actually in the Bible or people will say things, phrases like the good Samaritan. Well, that's in the Bible. The phrase, the good Samaritan came because there's a story of a good Samaritan in the Bible. Um, if you listen to rappers, um, and, and different hip hop artists, they'll often refer to parts of religion and aspects of religion that have influenced them. Um, so just kind of in, in various areas of our own culture, um, and, and around the world, the Bible has influenced people and, um, affected people's lives. And so this is a book that has withstood the test of time. <laughs> I mean, it's over 2000 years old and so it's still having its influence. And so why would we want to be ignorant of this incredibly powerful book? Even if that means you're reading it and rejecting its truths, I I would still argue it's it's a book that is worth reading and being um, informed about. Yeah. So that's kind of what I would hope kind of people would understand, maybe the significance. And I realize people have, you know, every every person has probably had their own, has their own view of the Bible in terms of kind of whether that was shaped by a bad experience they had or a bad experience with the church or a person that claimed the Bible, or maybe you've, you've got a Bible that someone gave you and you've never touched it. So kind of we, a lot of people have had some experience that has um, informed their perspective about the Bible, but kind of stepping back and viewing that big picture of the Bible's impact in, in our world and through history, I think can hopefully be helpful for people to kind of have a, a bigger picture in, in approaching it. Yeah. So I hope that people kind of have the, um, I guess, motivation to see like, okay, like maybe there's something there, um, which would motivate them to want to read the Bible. And hopefully then our book would be a tool and a resource for helping them explore some of our own kind of maybe preconceptions that we bring to the table based on our own culture and upbringing and um, how that shapes our view when we are reading the Bible and helping them to to kind of have a, a, a big picture when they are reading the Bible. So hopefully it's our book would be a good resource. Yeah, I mean, I just, um, for like in the Museum of the Bible, what your family's done with that, and then your book. And I mean, it's like, you. those are both really creative, awesome ways that we're get, that you're getting it back out there and just into the conversation. And... Yeah, that's not easy to do. Uh, you know, and everyone is so consumed by everything all the time. Like our minds are so busy. Like we're on all the social media. Um, we're just co- constantly bombarded with stuff. And so, I mean, if anything, if nothing else, I would say if if nobody does anything else related to faith, opening the Bible, I literally think is the most powerful thing they can do. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I I think that God uses that in such a powerful way. Like it is alive. <laughs> so right. I, I yeah. really believe that like someone can open the Bible and God can speak to them in a way that they could not hear from him in any other way. So, um, I think that's just so powerful what you guys have done. Uh, and that's that. one of the, that, yes, go ahead. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the claims that the Bible makes about itself, that it is living and active. Um, 
are just amazing. And so I think that that is something that as people are engaging in it and reading in it, will have to reckon with their own lives and say, okay, based on the claims that this book is making, um, what am I going to do with that? And so, I mean, hopefully that is a question that people are coming to in the midst of engaging with it. And for, for me personally, in a world living in a world that is so, um, rapidly changing, that can be so full of, um, a lot of despair and, um, disappointment. I have found that having something, uh, timeless to hold on to has given me a lot of, you know, I, I share about our daughter's cancer journey and, and just the, the struggle that we had even to, to have this adoption and have our daughter with us in the midst of that. I, I found so much peace and hope in scripture because it was something that was bigger than me. It was something that was, has been around for millennia and that people have turned to for peace and hope in the, in their darkest despair and having that connection to something, um, that would, that just had a, a greater rootedness than anything that we can see today kind of in our world that's so rapidly changing and is so quickly distracted. And, you know, our attention span is like six seconds now. Um, it, it gives so much depth, um, that I think our generation is craving. So I hope that millennials and, and Gen Z, really anyone that will read our book and, um, be encouraged to read the Bible will find that same peace and hope that ultimately is through Jesus Christ, who is the relationship that I have because of the truths of scripture. Um, that, that is kind of, I, I think for me, the ultimate hope out of, out of all of that. So just wanted to say that though, because I, your point about kind of being in a world that's, you know, so rapidly changing. I, I think that one of the draws hopefully of the Bible for our generation is the timelessness of this book, the Bible. Mm -hmm. What is just one quick question about this? What is something cool that someone can see in the museum? You know, really early New Testament writings that are from, you know, second, third century. So just a couple generations of Jesus' life, which is really cool. Um, but one of the, the cool things about the museum is that there are uh, three different stories that are being told. The museum is covering the history of the Bible, kind of showing how we got the Bible today. So showing a lot of different biblical artifacts and kind of the chronological history to the Bible. Um, but it also shows the impact of the Bible, showing some of the things I've highlighted today of kind of how has the Bible impacted different areas of our world, whether it's government or um, healthcare, uh, music, the arts, fashion, kind of showing, look, the, the Bible's had impact in people in all of these different areas. So that's just really cool to see, like, this is a book that hasn't had a diverse impact on people. And then the third story is the narrative of the Bible. So if you're wanting to get a high level overview of kind of what is the story of the Bible, like Genesis to Revelation, the beginning of the book to the end, uh, you can walk through this Old Testament experience that is a 45 minute experience and highlights the Old Testament. And then there's a New Testament theater where you'll watch a 12 minute video that highlights kind of this is what the New Testament is. So it's great for anyone and everyone. So if you're a Bible scholar or if you've never read a single thing in the Bible, you can go in and find something for you that's interesting and that you can learn. So it's really fun. It's very engaging. 
So there's, yeah, so many things. So many yeah, things. Yeah, I'm like dying <laughs> to go, to really, I because I just like I'm the perfect person to go just because I'm so interested in the Bible. But <laughs> I just, uh, I've yeah. got to get there. I've got to make it happen. And now I'm even more excited. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I've got um, a couple end of the podcast questions that I ask everyone. Um, okay. So here, here we go. Um, can you name one role model, role model or influence in your life that is someone that you really look to? Yeah. So my parents, um, and so maybe that's cliche to say parents, but my parents really, I mean, I just, they've been incredible role models for me. And I think have of course had such an influence in my life because they're my parents, but they have just shown, um, through the, you know, 30 plus years that I've known them (laughs) just had a deep faith and a deep love for the Bible. And so their, their influence in my life has, has been uh, enormous, especially because in my own life, I wrestled through the questions of accepting scripture for myself, not just taking it at my parents' word. Um, but I'm grateful for the, for them showing me how to do that because they never shied away from the hard questions that I asked, but they said, yeah, like, let's figure that out together. So they've been an enormous influence, um, in my own life. But I also, um, I wrote a book a couple years ago called only one life where I highlighted, uh, it was, it was basically a book full of mini biographies of women kind of showing the legacy that women have shaped in the faith. And, um, one of the women that I wrote about was, um, Susanna Wesley and just the, the woman of prayer that she was, she's definitely been, been, um, a role model that I've never gotten to meet. Um, uh, you know, she, she lived, uh, passed away years before I was born, but just knowing her story and her influence and how she cared for her family and was a woman of faith has been an encouragement to my own walk. Okay. Who would you have dinner or drinks with, if you could do so with anyone, and why? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the people that I think is fascinating in our world is Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. because she's a female who is excellent at her craft and at the top of her game in her field of, of work. Yeah. And I you know, and always enjoy learning from other leaders and seeing how they're doing things. And so it would be really interesting to just kind of pick her brain about what motivates her, how she, you know, became what she is today and just kind of the heart behind, you know, the Taylor Swift that we see today who has been incredibly successful. (laughs) Did you see the documentary? I haven't gotten to watch it yet, but I definitely want to because I feel like that, you know, maybe I'll just eat dinner and watch that. And that can be my like pretend having dinner with Taylor Swift. (laughs) Until you get the actual chance. There you go. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, What is a goal that you have for yourself for the next five to 10 years? Yeah. So I would say that one of my goals is to finish my PhD mm-hmm. and I am a f- still a few years away from that, but I definitely, I, I hope that that's happens in the next, before the next 10 years for sure. Um, but I also hope to have uh, a couple more kids at least. So I, I want a bunch of kids and we've obviously had a difficult journey towards having children. And so now that I am finally a mom, it's, it's been really so sweet and I can't wait to see, um, if the Lord provides us with more children. That's awesome. Okay. Last question. One of my favorites is, 
I don't know. If you listen to podcasts, do you have a podcast recommendation and a recent book that you've read that you could recommend? Yeah. Uh, so right now I'm really getting interested in the Enneagram uh-huh. and I kind of resisted it for a while because it was trendy. And so I was like, well, I, you know, I'm going to not be in just hopping on the trend, but <laughs> the more I have heard about it and learned about it, I realized how actually really helpful it is. And so I'm listening to uh, Suzanne Stabile's podcast, The Enneagram Journey, mm-hmm. um, and finding it really fascinating. So that's kind of what I'm listening to these days. So what and I just finished you? reading. Oh, what? yeah. Enneagram yeah. number? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a three. Okay. And I'm married to a seven. So we are both in the aggressive stance. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's why we, you know, it's worked well for us to be like doing a PhD together yeah. and writing a book together because we're both high energy and kind of like, so yeah, like, let's do it. Let's make it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, but the book that I just finished that I absolutely love and I want to reread um, is um, David Paul Tripp wrote a book called Suffering. Uh-huh. And I read that, you know, over the past few months in our own season and was, it was just really encouraging. Okay. Uh, Paul I, Tripp. I, yeah, I know he, of him. He's great. I've read other stuff of his, and that was really good. Okay. Yeah, he's great. Awesome. Okay, well, that's it, Lauren. We did it. We actually did it. Great. <laughs> Yay. Thank you <laughs> so happened. much for uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and thank you, for again, for your patience for <laughs> getting me back on. So I appreciate you continuing to reach out. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.